we didn't really always think about whether it actually was like teaching anything or like better than what we were already doing or had any kind of like added value, right? It was just like, look at this cool thing. So I guess what I worry about is that, you know, the teachers would be like, oh, the AI thing. The kids love the AI thing. I got to do the AI thing, right? And that they feel like they have to jump in on the bandwagon and like use AI with their students because it's like the thing that is like what I need to do without really understanding the applications of it that are the most helpful and useful. Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of Educational Collaborators. And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. So today's search for artificial intelligence has to do with our need for artificial intelligence. So Alex, (laughs) you are a user of artificial intelligence. You turned me on to using it to make myself more efficient and probably better spoken as well, if only it worked for podcasts. So how do you use AI in your professional work? So first off, we're talking about generative AI, right? So we're talking about like the chat GPT and Claude and those kinds of things, correct? Yep. Yeah. So I use it to kind of do my first drafting. I have all sorts of thoughts. I dump them in and then I start asking for communication products like write me campaign emails or organize this into a presentation outline. And it's not perfect, but what it does is it just gives me some ideas to get me started and moving much more quickly. So that's how I use it. How do you use it? Not as much as I should, honestly. I should use it more. I find it is like an icebreaker when I'm stuck on something. I don't know how to start. I'll put some ideas of things that I want to say. Then it gives me a little feedback on what I'm trying to say. Either like, oh my God, that's not at all what I was looking to say. So clearly my key points are not a value. Let me try again. So that's how I use it. I guess I'm still easing in to it. It's been a few months now, but that's how I use it. My question though then is, We both use it to make ourselves more efficient. And I'd say even in my dabbling and your use of it, it has certainly been a tool that is of value. How do we teach kids? Like hopefully Mary Beth has that for us. How do do we teach kids to use these tools, right? Well, and I'm actually even more concerned because it's fairly intuitive. Once you get a few prompts under your belt and you start to use it, you can start to see the potential. It's hard to sort of envision it until you start to use it. My concern is not so much how do you teach students to use it. My concern is how do you teach teachers not to be afraid of it? That's what I mean, right? That's it. The kids will figure it out. I don't even know that you have to teach them. But how do we do it safely for them? How do we guide them in using it? But those questions is why we do need to teach students how to use it. I don't think just sort of saying, okay, these are these tools. You should try them out and go use them is the developmentally appropriate way for us to work with kids. but. We're not there to do that. I think teachers need to guide them through the opportunities and pitfalls and some of the ethical questions, but getting teachers to become comfortable with embracing the ethical questions as part of their teaching and recognize that using these tools is going to be part of the sort of information workforce. And so how do we adjust what we do in the classroom to make space for that rather than just reject it outright because of cheating. Right. I can't wait for the discussion to see what Mary Beth thinks about this. I think it's going to be great. I actually saw Mary Beth present at a recent online AI conference and her stuff is really, really incredible. And she's done a lot of much deeper thinking about this than either you or I, which again is a fairly low bar. (laughs) We're limited because we haven't found organic intelligence yet amongst ourselves. That is, She's cheating. She's using her brain. (laughs) Well, this should be a good interview. So looking forward to this show. Yeah, let's find out what Mary Beth has to say. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Mary Beth Hertz. Mary Beth has dedicated over 15 years to education in Philadelphia, consistently at the intersection of technology and learning. As the author of Digital and Media Literacy in the Age of the Internet, 
She provides a comprehensive guide for educators navigating the digital realm. She's not just confined to the classroom. As the founder of Walkabout Philly, she's taking proactive steps to evolve the educational model. And we'll talk about that at the end of the show, so stay with us. Recognized as one of ISTE's emerging leaders and named among technically Philly's realist connectors of 2023, her impact extends well beyond her immediate students. Mary Beth has been a friend for years. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you for that intro, Alex. Nice to be here. So let's go ahead and just start with sharing a little bit about your journey into ed tech. Take us through kind of the moments that ignited your passion for integrating technology into education and how this led to your current focus in AI, ethics, and policy. Back in 2005, in elementary school, I was teaching students science, and I was the only person in the building who wasn't scared of computers. And so I became the technology teacher leader in the building. So these was white iMacs and they had like 128 megabytes of memory and they would start to slow down when we had to update them. And I would pop the old memory cards out of dead ones and run around and like double the memory to 256. So that was kind of my first foray into like technology in schools. And then the next year they got a grant for desktops and I magically just became the like computer lab teacher with no training, with a lab, with like daisy chained power strips along the bottom. Cause this was a Philly public school built in like the 1920s. So there was no real curriculum except for like Microsoft Word and Excel. And I was teaching kindergarten through sixth grade. So this was also right around the time the web 2.0 came out. So this was where all of a sudden the interactive web, oh my gosh, you can interact with the internet, right? There's blogging and there's commenting and there's all this. And so I don't know why I joined Twitter. Oh, the ISTE conference. I joined Twitter. It was the 2009, maybe one in DC. And I joined Twitter and all of a sudden discovered there were other teachers doing this and trying these things and connected with them. And it really just took off from there. As a computer lab teacher, you're the only teacher that does what you do in the building. You have no peers, you have no support group, you have no grade group, no content area group. Twitter became my content area team, as it were. It is a lonely, lonely place. I mean, I ran the technology department at my current school and then was a director of educational technology. And yeah, I mean, people think you're like this magician. And I'm like, actually, I'm just really good at like keywords and search terms. <laughs> That's how I am able to do my job. Actually, when I was tech director at Friends Select, I'm a crafty person. I have a cricket and I made a fairy dust. Like I ironed it onto one of my pockets in my scrub shirt and I would walk in and like pretend to sprinkle fairy dust on things. So that was basically people were like, you just do magic. But yeah, so I mean, it just basically came down and I'll back up and maybe this is adding too much to the story, but like, As a woman growing up in the 90s, no one told me that girls could do computers. But my dad built computers for fun because he's one of those kinds of like, he's a contractor. And so he likes to build with his hands. So I was always around computers. Like I remember typing C colon backslash windows to get into windows on DOS, like those kinds of things. So I was exposed to it and I wasn't scared of them because I had it in my house. But I always wonder in the back of my head if I had known that girls could do this stuff at a younger age, would I be doing something different? That's just a question that I always have in the back of my head. So that was my journey into ed tech is just kind of not being scared when everybody else was scared. An opportunity opened the door. I jumped in and I also discovered about myself. That's the fun part of being over 40. You like learn things about yourself. I discovered that one of the reasons I love teaching is because I love learning and I get paid to learn every day. And so for me, like that challenge, right, of walking in and being like, okay, I have 32 desktops, they're in boxes, I have 32 little desks and like five power strips and two outlets, <laughs> like what, let's make it happen, you know, so, and a projector on a cart projecting on a chalkboard that is like literally slate, like old school slate. Let me transition you actually towards AI and ethics, because like, I get that journey Similar to mine. I mean, the principal who first hired me to be a tech director was actually interviewing me for an English teaching position and a debate coaching job. And his question was, do you do computers? And I figured if that's the way you ask the question, you have no idea how to evaluate the answer. So my answer was, yes, I do. So that gets you into technology. But there are a lot of people who are still struggling 
with the notion of AI in education. And you have jumped in with both feet. I was going to say embraced, but embraced is probably not the right word. And that's what we're going to dive into a little bit in this episode. But like you've absolutely jumped into AI in education. How did that sort of come about? I guess maybe just being in the classroom at that time when everything was changing so quickly and no one really understood what the impact of all this like blogging and micro blogging and social media and all this stuff was, it just felt very familiar. And so perhaps in that way, like, I just was like, okay, so this is it. This is the next thing. Like we've been chugging along, chugging along, chugging along. This is some people would consider AI a part of Web3. Some people wouldn't. But this is like the next thing that feels very similar to the way Web2 felt, with the difference being that with Web2, and in some ways this is different, but with Web2, we really had no frame of reference at all, right? Like nothing. We didn't understand what data was being collected. We didn't understand how these tools were made. We were just so excited about how cool they were. I mean, I remember Google Wave, like it was so cool, Google Wave, it's gone now. But like, but you know, just those kinds of like the exciting, like the magic of it, right? It really did feel magic. And there were so many great things about how it connected people and, you know, teachers finding each other, people finding each other and that connection. And then slowly but surely we find out what's going on and what's been going on that we uh, behind under the surface, right? That we didn't know. So for me, I almost felt like it was super important for those of us who were there at that time to speak out about our experiences and make sure that we didn't screw it up like we did before. Like I always used to say back then that we threw kids out on the playground and never taught them how to play, right? We never guided them. There were no adults out there teaching them how to navigate that like digital space that they were in. And now, you know, we're almost making some of the same mistakes. We can get to that conversation. But I think for me, the reason I jumped in was because of that, I had a perspective that would be helpful, but also feeling that it was kind of because I feel like I was part of the problem in some ways back then, right? Like of the evangelizing of this cool stuff that turned out to be like maybe problematic. Or it's just I didn't fully understand that I felt it was really important for me to share my perspective and my experiences to hopefully guide us towards making better decisions, more informed decisions than we did in the past. We're going to talk about AI some here, but I'm a certain age in which there was a movie that I was recently watching from when I was a wannabe engineer and not an actual engineer yet. And they talked about artificial intelligence and, you know, not to give too much away, but this was in the mid 80s. And they talked about artificial intelligence, and my recollection of my first computer was that it had 64K of memory. Yes, K, not M, not G, K of memory. And yet we talked about artificial intelligence. So it's not something new for us. And little quick Google keyword, Alan Turing's imitation test takes us to AI back to 1950, which is well before my time. So you ended up in technology because you weren't afraid. And I thought, oh, when Alex asks her about AI, it's going to be the same answer. You weren't afraid. So we work with schools in which the leaders of the schools are afraid of AI and they run from it. And we have others who truly do embrace it, like Alex said. So I guess my first question is, we're talking about AI back to Alan Turing before they were using vacuum tubes for computers to much more my time when, you know, K of RAM and computers that still took up whole rooms to now we're still talking about artificial intelligence. So what is artificial intelligence for us to talk about? What do you think, Mary Beth? So my favorite thing I ever heard somebody say, and I wish that I had written down who said it was AI is like an eager intern that sometimes lies to you. To me, like that clicked for me where it's really excited, right? To do this thing for you because it's what it's like exists to do but it doesn't actually have the intelligence to quite see the context for understanding what it's doing. It's like, it takes directions very well, <laughs> but it also spits out garbage. So I think for me, that's generative AI, right? And one the lesson I did with my students this week, there's a really great graphic I found is concentric circles, right? And the outside circle is artificial intelligence. The inside circle is machine learning and the very center circle is deep learning. So I show them that image 
and then talk about how artificial intelligence is just computers doing things that like humans usually do, right? When we want to talk about what it is. The way we've gotten to this point in the unit is we've started by learning about how the internet works, what are packets, what is IP addresses, how does data travel through the internet? They look up their own IP address. We look it up on IP Sniper and they're like, holy crap, it's on a map, you know, and they understand like just understanding how data moves through the internet and what's happening, because that's the basis for understanding all of the concerns around privacy, tracking data, like all that kind of stuff. So we start with that infrastructure understanding, and I swear this is coming to artificial intelligence. We look at cookies and they look at like websites that are tracking cookies. And then we talk about different ways that the companies can profile you, right? You don't fill out your race on Netflix, but they know what race you are, right? They know by what you watch. And we talk about recommendations and what do we think about that? Is that good? Is that bad? Some, you know, for some of them, they're like, I love being recommended stuff, right? And so we also talk about like the way that hacking works, right? Like you give your data to these companies and then if those companies are hacked, now your data is someplace else. Also that's illegal, but then there's also legal ways those companies are selling your data. And so just understanding all that stuff. And then today, after I show them the circles, I show them a list of all the applications of artificial intelligence that they've already experienced, which is every single thing we've been talking about for the last like two weeks, right? All those things that the students have been learning about AI is used to build those profiles and to do all that tracking. And so I try to help them see that, like you were saying, Bob, like this is not new. Artificial intelligence as a broad thing is nothing new. The generative stuff, the deep learning is the new stuff. You know, the idea of mimicking neural networks and the machine learning piece, right? Like that's the stuff that is now, and even that's not new, but it's new to us because OpenAI was like, have it. <laughs> So I guess as far as the long-winded answer to your very simple question, what I hear happen is people say AI when what they mean is generative AI or machine learning, right? And so, and large language models and those kinds of things. So I think it's important that people understand that AI isn't new and it's not something that's like magic and fancy that it's actually everywhere and has been everywhere because I think that goes into us understanding how is it being used on ethical ways every day in our own lives? So that's the really long-winded answer. <laughs> that's great, though, because we've had conversations at our own company about AI in schools. And one of the things that Bob has regularly said is, hey, we talk about AI as though it's new and it's not new. Like, it was interesting for me to kind of hear somebody else in this planet actually validate Bob Cerruti. It doesn't happen very often. So that was fun. That was good, but it was also great to kind of hear at the beginning of your answer talking about like how you share this with students and sort of how you sort of guide through that. So let's move from that esoteric sort of what is AI and into the classroom. So from a curriculum standpoint, a lesson design standpoint, what do you do? And you can expound a little bit on what you do as you already started to describe, but also what should teachers do that aren't teaching AI, what kind of curricular changes should we be making to prepare students to live in this world that has all of those collectors and connectors that you were just talking about? Yeah. And it's tricky, right? Because one of the things as I, this summer, I dug into a lot of the privacy policies on these tools and we really shouldn't be using them with students. <laughs> I mean, if you look at their privacy policy, the only one that says you don't have to be 18 is ChatGPT. And ChatGPT uses your data to train its models. <laughs> so if students are putting stuff in there and, you know, we can get permission from parents, we can do all that. There are processes for that. But I'm probably in the minority <laughs> in saying that, like, I struggle with that, right, of like putting this in the hands of students because of the data. Well, first of all, ChatGPT, the district blocked it, but they didn't block Claude AI. I use Claude because of the constitutional AI piece and they don't use their data to train their model. That's like their, so. Is Claude another tool like ChatGTP? Claude was created by folks who left OpenAI and they left OpenAI and they started Claude.ai and they call it constitutional AI. So rather than having humans sit there and look at all this stuff and go, that's good, that's bad. That's like a human tuning is what they call it. They built the model to have values and to train itself on its own values. 
So the idea is that one of the points they make, and this is totally off topic, but it's like one of those things that I don't think people think about is that the same way Facebook pays people like five cents an hour in Indonesia to look at porn and suicides and horrendous content on Facebook and flag it. These companies, these AI companies are paying humans to do the same thing. So OpenAI is still paying humans to look at this horrendous things and flag them and train the model to be like, no, thank you. So Claude AI is trying to cut down on the human tuning piece of that kind of stuff by building a model that kind of checks itself, like goes back to its own training and goes like, okay, does this fall back into my constitution of how I should be responding or giving answers? I'm sure it's flawed. I was going to say, doesn't that kind of come with its own sort of... Well, they say they have human tuning. It's not that they don't have human tuning. They have both. So the model has both human tuning and also that set of values that is set on and trained on. You said something that made me think is like, so you said the district block chat GPT, right? Because it's my supposition that 90% of the educators think AI is chat GPT. So that's what gets blocked. Email shout off to the tech department, block chat GPT. We can't have this stuff in the, but they miss everything else. They miss that teachers, the teachers have an echo dot We're in their classroom, it, you know, to play I'm music using as a teacher. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we can't stream. They block streaming because of the bandwidth. So you can't stream Spotify and I think the bandwidth and also probably the copyright infringement. So I guess my point there from what you said is just that it's not new. AI is not new, but they hear chat GPT in the news or from colleagues and they say that's the AI and they shut it down. But it's coming anyway, right? Of all the people in a school, educators, administrators, students, parents, community, who's not afraid of it? The kids. The kids aren't afraid of it. Everybody else doesn't know. But the kids will dive right on in. And the kids are using it on their phone. And they're just hotspotting to their phone to get around the network. So, Yeah. So your advice for teachers is really you need to understand this. And maybe they shouldn't be using that. Are there tools teachers can and should use with their students? Yeah. So I think, well, maybe two, three thoughts. I would say as far as like not using it, I won't go so far as saying not using it. I think the mistake that we made back in the day was we got so excited that we just threw this stuff in the hands of kids because it was cool, right? Like, look what it can do. But we didn't really always think about whether it actually was like teaching anything or like better than what we were already doing or had any kind of like added value, right? It was just like, look at this cool thing. So I guess what I worry about is that, you know, the teachers would be like, oh, the AI thing. The kids love the AI thing. I got to do the AI thing, right? And that they feel like they have to jump in on the bandwagon and like use AI with their students because it's like the thing that is like what I need to do without really understanding the applications of it that are the most helpful and useful because until teachers use it and see how it helps them, how can we possibly teach students like, so for me right now, like to your question, for me, I talk with my colleagues about like, oh, you know, you can upload a PDF of your UBD stage one and stage two, and it'll do all your daily lesson plans, right? And they're like, what? Because <laughs> it'll read claw.ai, you can upload a PDF, it'll read the PDF, and you just tell it, I need, this is how many days I have, this is how long a class period is, can you break down this unit into that many days? And it looks at my essential questions, it looks at my understandings, my skills, like all the things I've outlined of what I want students to know in the unit. And it just plans it out day by day. What I always say is it gets you about 80% there on everything. At this point, generative AI is about 80% there. The other 20%, you got to, that's that human tuning piece, right? So for me, the most important thing is for teachers to see the value in it, but also understand that it's more than just like generating a five paragraph essay, right? The idea of leveraging it as a thought partner and leveraging it to have conversations and to probe it, right? To give you more or, or to refine or to, to do those kinds of things. Because until teachers really understand that aspect of it, there's no way that we're going to know how to guide students through that use of it, which is the way we want students to use. It. I mean, there's a lot of potential for these tools, especially when we talk about inquiry, right? I mean, I work at an inquiry-based school. How better could you get at like teaching kids how to ask good questions, right? Or like 
learning how to ask follow-up questions or what kind of questions do I ask to get the right kind of feedback that I'm looking for or those kinds of things. Running a school or district is hard. Your tech shouldn't be. With HP as your trusted partner in program success, you get more than just beautiful, future-proof technology. You get a team dedicated to your growth. Experience cutting-edge innovation, unmatched reliability, and personalized support, all tailored to fit your unique needs. From high-performance laptops and printers to innovative software solutions, HP has you covered wherever you work. Visit us today at hp.com or stsed.com. So, Mary Beth, I have no idea if that's your term or you heard it, but thought partner struck me. That is an outstanding description of using artificial intelligence to get to the heart of something, to figure it out. Alex and I both use it in our daily work as well to get us 80% of the way. But if we don't know the questions to ask, or if we don't know what we're trying to get at, we don't get anywhere any sooner. So I really like that. But here's a question, or I'd like you to clarify maybe is, I agree with you. Teachers need to use it One, it'll make them more efficient. It'll improve their ability to teach because it frees them up from the mundane stuff of dividing out hours into periods. But if they don't come fast, the kids will be using it anyway. I guarantee you 80% of their students knew about OpenAI long before they'd ever heard of it. So what can we do to get teachers to get going? Because the kids are going to use it. It's one of those things, if we don't guide them, it's kind of the Wild West. They're going to figure it out. They're going to get into their own trouble with it. They're not going to learn the best practices with us. What can we do to get those teachers going so that they're prepared to lead the students? And I'll start by saying what's fascinating. I don't know if it's because they were lying to me. I asked my students, I say, how many have heard of ChatGPT? Most of them raised their hand, right? And then I look at them and I say, no judgment because I use it to write my lesson plans. Who has used ChatGPT? Four out of like 20 kids will raise their hand. And this is something that I struggle with too, is I have found that a lot of the assumptions we make about kids are centered in privilege or centered in access privilege. And so I wonder, this is an inquiry question I have, is the assumption we have that all kids are using it accurate in all settings everywhere. And so I, that's just something I'm a little thing that I wonder, but I would say as far as the teachers go, what I don't think will work, which is what we tried with Twitter back in 2009 was like, Twitter is so cool. You should make an account. You're going to be awesome. And you're going to learn a lot and you're going to have a PLC and you're going to, right. And then we're like, oh wait, joining Twitter isn't actually the thing <laughs> that's going to change your educational life. Right. So I don't know that just saying you have to use it is the right thing so much as having structured conversations around what is our approach as a school. What values do we have as a school and what makes the most sense as to how we approach this? Because you're going to have teachers all over the place. You're going to have teachers who want it blocked, right? You're going to have teachers who are like, don't block it because I want to use it. You have teachers who are saying, I use it for my lesson planning here at school. Like, please don't block it, right? You have all kinds of places. And I think it can get confusing too as a kid especially in if in one class you're being told you're plagiarizing and in another class you're being encouraged to use it, like how do we as teachers and as educators come to a shared understanding of our policies, our approach, our understanding of how we think these tools belong in our community? I mean, that's just something I worry about is the conversations are always about use it or don't, you know, like instead of like the whys or the real understanding of the value adds to the tool. So this is just something I thought about, Mary Beth, when you said four students raise their hands. I would be the kid. It was a long time ago when I was in high school. We've already established this. But I would have been the kid who used artificial intelligence. And then unless it was my very favorite trusted teacher like Mr. Wampum or Miss Parrish, I would have never admitted to it because... I know I'm not supposed to use it because it's blocked. So clearly it's something I shouldn't be using. I mean, right, it's blocked like porn. It's blocked like other bad things like violence, like guns. We have lumped artificial intelligence, this great, powerful tool that will impact these students' careers. Like we can teach them word. We can teach them math. But AI is the thing that they've got now that we can guarantee will be with them their whole life. So I have this problem with blocking 
tools. And I would have lied. I would have been like, nope, I never used that before. I have no idea what it is. My ability to write papers is just vastly improved. So I'd like to get these tools into teachers' hands and into students' hands. So what platforms or what can teachers use that we feel good about and that they can manage, if there are any? So one thing that I saw, and I can't remember where I saw it, was a very interesting application, not application like app, but like application of the use of it. So teacher had a station in their classroom that was the chatbot station. So if you needed a thought partner, you could walk up to the chatbot station and you can ask your questions and do your thing and have a conversation. It wasn't logged into a student's account. It wasn't like the students were using it and it was allowed, right? It was like, there's the chatbot if you need to just work something out. The other piece, my colleague, and I actually, this was Larry Ferlazzo did all summer, a whole bunch of stuff on AI. And so he featured a little snippet about me and my colleague. So she partnered with the founder of Youth Voices, and he actually incorporated the ChatGPT API into the tool. So the thought partner idea isn't something I made up. It's something that came from the conversations that I have with her about what she was doing with that tool, because students were training the AI to give them specific feedback, pretend you are a blah and give me blah, 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 right? So they were training the AI to be a thought partner and give them specific kinds of feedback on their writing. And also to kind of begin to, because she's an English teacher, and also to help them formulate ideas. And so that was incorporated into the tool. What I did find in my research, and I don't know if it's changed at all, but from what I read, the API of ChatGPT does not train the model. So if you're using ChatGPT proper... To my understanding, it's a setting when you do the API connector that you can choose whether or not it gets absorbed by the tool to train the model. And most software developers do not want to feed their data to ChatGPT. So in general, they tend to turn it off. And this was the guy, Paul Allison is his name, but he built it and he definitely had it off. But to me, like... That's what I want to see more of is where you have that safer version of it, right? The API version of it incorporated. I know that's what Comingo is also trying to do. Comingo, to me, that is where we'd have to go to have these tools really be able to be put into the hands of students. But then I also still worry, right? Like the black box of what these companies are doing with the data that our students are putting in there. because. Unlike other stuff, like the conversations kids could have with these things, like, should I do drugs? <laughs> like, should I have sex? <laughs> Am I gay? Like, the kinds of things that kids could talk to these bots about is on a whole other level. And they have to log in to use them. You can't use them without logging in. That's where the API piece, where if you're able to leverage the technology in a platform that's not collecting the data that has some safeguards and has some other walled garden type stuff. Because I think that's my biggest concern of putting in the hands of kids. There's a whole discussion to be had about why it is kids are talking to chatbots about things like drugs, sex, gay, and not to people. And it's also not new, right? They were just doing private searches, right? And thank God. Or they were on AOL Messenger, like talking to strangers in chat rooms. Yeah, right. Talking to strangers about that. (laughs) I did just learn, you know, we're a Microsoft training partner. And on their partner meeting just last week, they mentioned Bing Chat. And so if you have the enterprise license for either a company or a school, your chat stays in your domain. It doesn't go back to the model. And you'll know it if you're an audience member and you're wondering, do we have that? When you go to bing.com slash chat, it'll tell you. So if it doesn't say this is the enterprise version and your information is going to stay within your organization, if it doesn't say that, then it's going back to train the model. It's going back into the organization. So So that's the saying, right, Alex? If you're paying for the enterprise version, you get secure search. So if you're paying for the product, you get the product. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Yeah. And if you're using a Chromebook, you're just SOL. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like what is- 98% of schools. Right, I was going to say, that's, a, that's an awful <laughs> lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So that, because I talked to my students today, I, 
because you can put the Bing browser on your phone, right? Like you can put the Bing app on your phone. And I said, it's built into Bing. You know, it's Microsoft owns it and bought it, but you can't use it if you're using the Chromebook. So that's the limitation of that. And obviously the cost, right? Like enterprise solutions sounds great if you're a small district, a wealthy district, a private school just running their own system. But like realistically, a large district like the one I work in, they're not buying enterprise solutions, right? Or if they are, it's for IEP database things or like MTSS software or like things like that. So I mean, I think the to the curriculum piece, what I my plan is because ChatGPT is blocked, <laughs> I'm going to use Claude and I'm going to do huddle time around the, the smart board. We're all going to pull up our chairs and I have an external keyboard and mouse. I'm going to pull up my Claude and we're going to talk to it and we're going to just see what it does and just have a conversation with it as a class so that they can see what it does. And I think also like the piece we haven't talked about, and this ties into my worry about personalization because I mentioned the Conmingo thing, right? And Salcon is pushing the big personalized education. And so for me, it's kind of like the difference between personalization and personalized. Like, I don't know if that makes, I don't know, that may not personalized. Personalization to me is like an adaptive reading program. Meaning like when I hear personalization, I hear, oh, the AI knows you got this one wrong. It's going to give you this one and look how great it is because it's challenging you and it's, you know how to do. In Comingo, it's the same thing. You know, it's talking to you and it's gauging like based on what you're putting, kind of what you're trying to talk about and all that kind of stuff. And so it's personalized. But to me, the hard part is we still don't know how they're personalizing things and what they're collecting about kids to know what to feed them next and what's happening to the data that they're collecting to be able to personalize this stuff. That's one big concern I have. And the other piece is like, do we really want a whole bunch of kids sitting in front of computers talking to a chat bot? Like, is that the future of education? (laughs) I think there's definitely value. Like there are schools that don't have teachers, right? If you need a tutors or there's rural districts, yeah, there's a whole internet access issue thing there. That's a whole other ball game and whether they can even access this stuff because of an access. And I'm not saying it's all bad, right? But what I worry about is we see people like Sal Khan up here on this pedestal, like he's this guru of education, but in the end, like he has a product that he's pushing that he believes is helpful and it is, but I'm worried that people are going to be like, that's it. That's all we need. We just need kids talking to chatbot tutors. Now we don't have to hire extra TAs in the classroom and and we don't need assistance and we don't need any of this human touch on anything anymore. So that's why I think I wrote down sitting kids down in front of chatbot tutors in the name of personalization is kind of my worst nightmare. (laughs) That was my sentence about personalization. That's great. So Mary Beth, this is fascinating and I have so enjoyed this conversation. I said at the beginning, I was going to ask you about Walkabout Philly, and you shared a little bit about that with me earlier. And I just wanted our audience to hear just a little bit about this. Tell us just a little bit about sort of the Walkabout model, how you understand it, your experience with it, and then tell us what it's like to try to start a school. Yeah, I actually, it's funny. I had a conversation with my assistant principal today, right after school, we were sitting in the main office and I don't know why we were talking about AI, but we got talking about AI. And I was saying about, you know, how important it is. So I'll back up and just say, so Walkabout Philly is an experiential learning model, right? So having kids doing internship service learning, one of the challenge areas is wilderness. So like literally taking kids out into nature. In fact, I attended Walkabout as a senior in New York, and we went on two week long backpacking trips, like 50 pound pack on your back. That's it. For a week. And so what I said to him was like, we need to have kids engaging in things outside of school that aren't necessarily academic, that help them connect with the community, because this is the generation that is going to need kind, ethical, collaborative, caring humans, right? Humanity is like the missing link <laughs> of the future, right? Because that is something that we've learned that technology has somewhat distanced us from, brought us closer together in a lot of really great ways. Like I would never have met half the people I've had amazing experiences with without social media. But 
especially in a place where, and maybe it's because I was watching Coded Bias last night, but the idea that we are being like graded by these things, right? Like that people are being denied loans, people are being denied credit, people are being stereotyped and stuff by these tools that for me, you know, I've kind of shifted from this like ed tech focus to looking at building good humans <laughs> because the tech is nothing if we don't have good humans behind it. And what we learned is that we had terrible humans building this stuff. They make the point that all of these tools were built by a certain demographic and they disenfranchise anyone who was not from that demographic because those people don't exist within the models that these things were trained on. And so for me, that is the passion behind Walkabout is having young people enter their adult life, having had experiences that help them understand themselves within the context of community, to help them understand their skill set, understand their strengths, understand what they have going for them that will help them live a healthy, happy life, but also how they can use their skills and their strengths to support other people and bring people along with them. And you do that by unothering. Like we have a group of kids who were in their houses for two years and only interacted on social media in their formative years, often their socially formative years. So how do we get them out of their house into the community that they were like scared almost to be in for two years because it was very scary to be out there and give them that opportunity to really see who they are in the context of the world they live in and, and see that they have a voice and that they have agency and they have value. So that's kind of like become my passion. But the technology piece is there because the technology isn't going away. These are the kids that are going to be building the next thing. And so for me, the job is not just the like scales of like, can you use AI? Can you code? Can you interpret data? Like all those like hard skills don't matter if you don't have a decent human, <laughs> like using them and thinking about ways to use them going to benefit society and not just benefit themselves or benefit a small group of people. So that's kind of what I've been realizing. There was a sudden shift for me where I was like, kind of feeling like the ed tech thing was fuzzy anymore, right? I'm like, I'm not as excited about the fancy tools. And why is it? I finally, it clicks for me. Like, I am excited about the tools. I am excited about what they can do, but I'm really more excited about making sure that we do the right thing with them, I guess. So I want to wrap with a couple of questions. So Mary Beth, who in the world of education or ed tech would you most like to take to lunch? There's a lot of folks that I really would love to take to lunch because I haven't seen them like in 3D in many years. But I think for me, Christina Ishmael, so Christina Ismail in the Office of Ed Tech is one of those people who has been doing the work for a really long time, who understands the nuances of equity, access, data, like all this stuff is really easy to talk to, unbelievably helpful, unbelievably kind, unbelievably open as a person. When I saw that she was taking on that role, I think I even sent her a message that was just like, I'm so thankful that it's you. <laughs> So I just know she'd be really fun at lunch. She likes to laugh. She has a lot of fun and she's really smart and just a fun person. So that's who I would love to have lunch with. That is a great answer. I have not eaten with her, but we did drink several glasses of stuff while we were talking. She's phenomenal. That's a wonderful answer. Wonderful. So we have covered some ground today with AI. And I think that for us to bring it together, like, what should our audience look for? Where can they learn more about AI and education and the ethics of AI for our students and even for the public at large? I've been following the work of AI and education. They have a website. They have been putting out a lot of really awesome resources that kind of avoid the hype in some ways. And they're pretty realistic in their approach. They're balanced in their approach. They're focused on the measured approach of being thoughtful, but also providing teachers with 
things they can use right away. Like here are prompts you can use right away. Here are things you can use right away, but like webinars and you know other resources. So I've enjoyed the stuff they've been putting out. The tool magicschool.ai, which I believe it leverages ChatGPT4. I don't know if it's, I think that's what it leverages, but it has built-in prompts. So it has like, it's built its own bots. You know, you can train a bot on like poe.com. You can train your own bot and put it out there and it'll, people can talk to it and like maybe talk to me like I'm a pirate, right? And people can talk to it and it'll talk to you like a pirate, like that kind of thing. Except this, they built out a suite of tools for teachers that talk to teachers and generate stuff for teachers, like rubrics. There's even like UDL type stuff. There's lesson plans. There are individual trains, little different tools that teachers can interact with to generate things. So for this group of teachers who some had used stuff, some had never used anything, they put them in small breakout rooms because they came from different schools. So they were with their own colleagues and, you know, I'd pop in and, and it was just a really easy way for them to understand prompting and understand how these tools could be of value to them without them having to come up with their own prompts. Because the prompting on the back end, the tool had kind of been pre-trained. So what was neat was the people who clicked for, they immediately were like, okay, but this is like not quite what I want. And I'm like, and that's where you take it and you copy paste it and you put it into chat GPT (laughs) and you talk to it and you train it and you fine tune it. Right. And so it was a really neat way to get those people who had never used anything like this before to kind of be like, whoa, what? It just did that, you know, because there's drop down menus like I teach this subject, this grade. And so you're like telling the model about yourself and then it generates stuff, right? And then to the other end, the teachers who were ready to see that I want to tune this a little bit and they wanted, and it like prompted them that inquiry, right? It prompted them to want to go and tune it and make it better. So I find the tool very limiting because I've always found pre-made stuff limiting. So if you're a teacher that just likes to use stuff off of teachers, pay teachers, and you don't care, it's probably great. (laughs) But if you're the kind of teacher who never seems to be able to find that anybody's made the thing that you want and how you want it, it's a really great jumping off point to then go and fine tune what you want. So those two are the top of mind, like places that I would start. I also have a whole bunch of resources. I have like a seven page Canva (laughs) that has (laughs) overview of generative AI tools that are image generating and text generating. And it goes over like their privacy policy of how they use data and also what age you have to be to use it so that it's just kind of a cheat sheet for teachers. And then it also, some of the stuff we were talking about, some of the ideas around how to approach this as a school and the kinds of things you should be thinking about centering your values around those conversations. There's a little framework in there too, that schools can use to kind of think about how they want to have the conversations around using these tools in their school. So that's something I shared out earlier in the summer. Awesome. And for our listeners, we're going to be gathering information of these resources from Mary Beth, and we're going to be posting them with the podcast. So if you're the kind of person who doesn't like to click the button to read more and see the extended description, you should be that person so that you can get access to all of these resources. So Mary Beth, this has been a phenomenal conversation. It's so bad that the rest of the listeners aren't going to listen to the fact that this was, we're now like an hour and a half into our conversation, but this has been incredible. Thank you so much for joining us today. And also for the leadership that you're providing other people in terms of making sure that being good humans sort of is at the center of all of our work with technology and education. I I just really deeply appreciate and value that. Thank you so much for the time. I could keep talking forever because it's really fascinating stuff. And it's always fun to talk to, to people who ask good questions. It was a great way for me to also dig into my own thoughts. So I appreciate that opportunity. Thank you. Bob, what did you think about that? So I think Mary Beth and I on the idea of generative AI in classrooms are of the same mind. I am a non-blocker kind of person. I want kids to have the tools. If it's available, I want them to have it and use it. And I think she had really good ideas about how to do that. And that's what I got out of it is we as schools have to figure out a way in order for students to be able to use this in an appropriate manner, in a safe manner, but we have to. I think she said at one point, you know, this isn't just for their careers, it's for their lives. 
that they're going to have this tool. Microsoft Word may not exist. Google Sheets may not exist. But generative AI is going to be a way for them. What about you? Just to the point of what you said, it's already showing up in almost every other tool that we have, right? Like I know of an online teacher evaluation coaching program called Sydney, and now they've put AI into their tool. We're using ClickUp as our project management tool and AI tools are built into that. Like generative AI is being built into almost everything. And so these comfort, literacy, and responsibility with these tools is it's mandatory. And all of this exploded on the scene. Now, I know it's not new, but it went from something that you had to go seek to something that's in your face almost everywhere now. It is. And that part happened overnight. And that's just crazy for me. So I love that conversation. A couple of things that she said that really resonated with me. One was using AI as a thought partner, right? Absolutely. Both of our eyes got big when we saw that. Right, yeah. When we heard that. I mean, because that's kind of how I use it. How weird is that though, right? To think about like, I think the reason I didn't use that sort of term is because I don't think of a website software program as a thought partner, right? It's like the movie Her, right? (laughs) I'm not sure that I'm ready to call my laptop, my thought partner, but it really is. Uh, that resonated with me. And when she called it the over eager intern working with you, because it's smart, it's got access to lots of information, but it's just not always right. It does not have the context that an experienced human has with the subject area, which is, I think, why she said everything's sort of 80% in that. But I love that idea. It made me think of this example that somebody brought to my attention once was, so I'm a baseball fan. Behind me is some baseball memorabilia. I'm a Cleveland Guardians follower. And if I were to come home, having recorded the game for the night, and I came home from a meeting or something and asked my daughter, who's 15, I recorded the game, and she knows the results, and I say, am I going to enjoy watching it? She would know if they won, yes, you should watch it. And if they lost, she'd be like, save your time. But if I ask generative AI, it'll say like, well, Bob, you enjoy baseball and it's a baseball game. So of course you would enjoy watching a baseball game. (laughs) That's not what I mean, right? So that's not quite passing the Turing test for me. Right, exactly. I love that you brought up the Turing test in the interview as well, because actually you you haven't watched the imitation game, right? With a movie about Alan. You need to watch that. It's a fun movie. And the movie kind of starts and ends with the Turing game. And so he sort of plays it with a detective in this place, the game with them in the movie. It's a powerful and sad movie as well, but certainly a fascinating film. It's nice to know that at the end of a podcast, you're going to assign me homework. (laughs) I suppose amongst homework to be assigned a couple hour movie isn't so bad. No, especially when it's a good one. Anyway. All right. Well, until the next podcast. Yeah, Alex, we'll see you again later. Take care. Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific one-source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.